This is a Federal News Network podcast. Customer satisfaction with government services fell again last year. In fact, the satisfaction index fell to the lowest point since measurements started back in 1999. Not good news. Here with the details, the director of research for the American Customer Satisfaction Index, Forrest Morgison. Mr. Morgison, good to have you back. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So what happened? Give us the numbers here and also how the government average compares with the non-government average. Well, we've seen several years in a row now where we've had declining citizen satisfaction with federal government services. It fell again in uh, 2021, down 2.6% to a score of 63.4, and that's on a 0 to 100 scale that we use. And that number, as you mentioned, is in fact the lowest that we've recorded since we started measuring in 1999. But it's been dropping for several years now, so it's hard to attribute that to a given administration, I guess, at this point, if it's a first full year of a different administration. Yeah, that's correct. It seems to be, quote unquote, non-political in the sense that it really is reflecting some kind of underlying dissatisfaction among consumers with the services they receive, regardless of who's in charge of those services, at least nominally. So 63.4 is the federal government average. And what is the national average for commercial entities? Yeah, the national average sits at about 75 right now for the private sector services. So this is substantially, and in statistical terms, we'd say very statistically significantly lower than the private sector average. Governments tended, especially the federal government, has tended to be significantly below the private sector, but the gap is just widening here over the last four or five years. And we should point out that one department, the Interior Department, exceeded the national level with a 77 percent out of 100 rating. And they're pretty consistently up there, too, aren't they, Interior? Yeah, they tend to be our leader among the federal departments that we measure, that we capture in our data. They've tended pretty much every year that we have sufficient sample to include Interior, they tend to lead. And we attribute that mostly to the kind of service or the particular agency and services it provides being used by citizens within Interior, and that's really the National Park Service. So most of the respondents that we get vis-a-vis Interior are folks who've gone to a national park and enjoyed it. And, you know, given that it's a vacation thing, it's relatively low cost, some amazing national parks in the United States, that makes some sense. And when you compare that with who's down at the bottom, Department of Treasury, which is mostly people that have experienced the IRS, the huge gap between those two isn't really that surprising. I mean, nobody likes to pay their taxes. And so there's a certain obviousness to that kind of finding. But yet dissatisfaction with having to pay taxes is not the same as dissatisfaction with the service you get from the IRS. And the IRS has experienced significant shortfalls for a variety of reasons, say, in its ability to answer the phone on time and its website. Maybe it's the complexity of the tax code. So it is possible to separate what you don't like doing. For example, Health and Human Services is up there at 71 percent below the national average, but way above the government average. And people might go there when they're sick. And yet they did all right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, there's no easy answer to all of this in the sense that you just blame it on services or functions that citizens don't like. Even the IRS has been able to differentiate their online tax filing process with the the paper and pencil form filing process and provide pretty substantially higher satisfaction via some channels versus other channels. So it can be done. It's just a matter of trying to find the right balance and getting the citizens to use those new and more satisfying tools as much as possible. We're speaking with Forrest Morgison. He's director of research at the American Customer Satisfaction Index. And just if you would briefly review the methodology by which you get these scores. 
Well, what we do sort of in a nutshell is we go out and collect interviews throughout each calendar year. So we're constantly collecting data starting in the first week of January, running through December of each year. And we're asking citizens if they've experienced any federal government service. We separate out the postal service. So this doesn't include postal service because otherwise we get everyone saying, yes, I've used the postal service. But everything else is fair game. If they say yes, they've had an experience with a federal agency or program, we then interview them, ask them a range of questions about that experience and ultimately how satisfying it was, the trust they have in the government, the confidence they have in the government, and a variety of other questions. And then we aggregate all those interviews. It ends up being around 2,500 interviews that we do and run it through a statistical model that allows us to get the most accurate estimates of how satisfied they are, how they like the different quality attributes of the services and so forth. And that's the methodology that we use to produce these numbers and then track them year in, year out. And also looking at Republican versus Democratic answers, they're pretty close to identical. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon this year because... What we have seen, and we've done some research on this topic, what we've seen is that there tends to be pretty consistent changes across political administrations where the party in power is a little bit happier with the government than the party out of power. And when power changes hands, the party that comes coming into power gets more satisfied. The party that's losing power gets less satisfied and so forth. But not this year. I mean, this year we saw decreases not only across federal government, federal government wide, but also among both of the major political parties and the adherence to those political parties. Both groups dropped this year, and Democrats actually dropped more than Republicans did. So there's a real dissatisfaction here that goes far beyond political preference and the party in power. And I think a lot of that has to do, or at least certainly a good proportion of that has to do with the stress that's been placed on the federal government and the services it offers because of the pandemic. So you might say that President Biden's recent executive order on customer experience is well-timed. It is well-timed. And, you know, we've done a little bit of research on that, looked into it. It's similar to other executive orders that have come out over the last really 25 or 30 years that have been focused on trying to improve the customer service experience of the federal government and of its various programs. You know, it'll be interesting to see if this one has a bit more effect than some of the others have had. None have seemed to really turn the, the government into a private sector-like entity in terms of its satisfaction, but it's certainly the kind of movement that you like to see from the government. And who on the commercial side does really well as point of reference? You know, there's a variety of companies that probably wouldn't shock you to hear, but companies that we tend to find a, a pretty strong relationship between how well companies perform in satisfaction and how well they perform financially Amazon has been a perennial leader year in and year out in terms of customer satisfaction. Among fast food companies, a company like Chick-fil-A has been regularly at the top. You know, we've got airlines. Delta Airlines has been the leader for the last couple of years, which is a sort of a turnaround story. They were one of the sort of laggard, lower in the industry, you know, big old fashioned legacy provider, but they've really become a service leader in their industry. Apple does really well, both their retail stores and for their hardware, their iPhones do really well. So companies like that, that are performing really well financially, you can generally trace that back to them performing really well with their customers. And there's also just the quality of what it is they deploy and the speed of it too. There's some technical characteristics that make people satisfied with service, fair to say. 
Yeah, absolutely. We exist in a really rapidly changing service environment. A lot of it's for the better. A lot of it, you know, depending on the group of customers that you're working with is strange and new, but we're getting the ability to get service much faster, more seamlessly. You know, we still have some companies that are stuck in the, well, if you have a problem, call us and we'll bounce you around 35 menus without answering your question. But most companies through the use of multiple channels and what we call omni-channel service delivery have found a way to better serve customers by using these multiple methods automated chatbots, email, you know, chat windows, virtual assistants, and those kinds of things that are making service a little bit better, one would hope. And do you think that perhaps the ongoing pandemic and the multiplicity of messages that have been coming from the government, now two administrations each share about a year and a half or so of pandemic response, and it's confusing to the public, could that be a factor in general, do you think? Yeah, I mean, we don't measure that directly, but I think it's hard to not see everything that's been going on for the last two years, how it has not only stressed the federal government, but as you noted, the the varying messages that we get from the federal government, and not just across administrations, but within individual administrations. It's confusing to Americans. It, It doesn't reinforce our trust in the government, regardless of the political party that you come from. It's hard to look at all of this as something that has helped the government in the eyes of citizens. And it's just been a really traumatic time in general. So I think underlying the decline that we've seen, certainly the last two years in satisfaction with the federal government, you've got to look at that at least as a significant influencing factor there. Forrest Morgison is Director of Research at the American Customer Satisfaction Index. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to the latest survey itself at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she 
work during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us, um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often Sometimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.